Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm joined by a really interesting guest who's got a great backstory uh, to where he is today. His name is Parker McCurley, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Decent Labs, uh, which is a venture studio uh, that's um, nurturing Web3 uh, products. Uh, hey, Parker, how you doing? And by the way, a great name there with Decent Labs. I like that. <laughs> Man, you stole my opening joke. I was going to say the same. Yeah, um, I'm doing great, Matt. It's great to meet you. And uh, yeah, super excited to be here today and share a little bit about Decent Labs. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, before we kind of dive into the, the past, uh, the, the future is looking pretty good for you guys. You, you've sold some products to some pretty well uh, or uh, well-known names. Uh, and uh, I understand you guys are going through some fundraising now. So uh, good luck with that. And I hope it all goes, goes really well. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, what we're doing is pretty unique because rather than a traditional venture around where really getting a lot of different investors and builders in the space to collaborate to form a venture studio DAO together. Uh, so it's all happening on chain and it's all kind of very novel. We're taking two new, newer operational concepts, which are a venture studio that builds versus strictly investing capital and a DAO, which I'm sure, you know, we've discussed plenty. So uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. We're having a good time. Yeah, that's that's great, and we'll we'll definitely get into the DAO stuff in a bit because um, I want to unpack that for for people. Um, I think this would be a great way to kind of like take some of the scary things away about a DAO and just sort of like you know describe what it is as, as a new way of just forming kind of organizations. Um, totally. But let's go back a little bit in your past. Um, as I understand it, you 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 didn't have the easiest upbringing and, and you were kind of bouncing around a little bit um, before you kind of found, found your calling. Can you, can you tell us uh, kind of what, what that was like and, and how you, where you kind of came from? Yeah, totally. Um, so I grew up in Cleveland and I would say, I mean, I don't think anybody has, has an easy upbringing. And, you know, for me, it was like we were a working class family and um, you know, both my parents worked really hard. And I, I think like, every day there's something that my parents taught me that I like find myself using at work, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, but I, I think, you know, the real things that were difficult for me growing up uh, in the Midwest at the time I was uh, were the result of the 2008 financial crisis, um, mm -hmm. as well as the opiate epidemic that was like really terrible in the Midwest. So I think for me, um, you know, a lot of my journey into Bitcoin was experiences that I had during that time, watching tons of families, you know, myself included, just experience immense difficulty as, as a result of the financial crisis, um, as well as just like 
you know, sort of like a, a really sick outcome of that around me in the Midwest, which was this opioid epidemic and crisis where, you know, I mean, it was just like a really depressed and, and miserable time for a lot of people. And it was during that time when I discovered uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I, I discovered it as a proposed solution for the financial crisis and for, you know, predatory lending practices and basically, um, you know, uh, a way to prevent that sort of thing from happening again. And, and that was really attractive to me, even as a kid. So, yeah. Was, did the opioid crisis in your opinion kind of follow the, um, the, the out or the, um, uh, the, 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 sorry, I'm spacing out just the, the wreckage of the financial crisis. Did it kind of like that, did that sort of set the stage or was the opioid crisis kind of already happening in your experience in the, financial crisis just kind of like made it even worse with, with economic um, situation. Totally. Um, and, I, and I'm definitely, I'm not an as expert on this topic as some of my friends are, but there's a great book called uh, Dreamland by Sam Quinones that kind of covers this. And I mean, they are closely related because if you look at the financial crisis, uh, very similar to the, to the pandemic that we just experienced, there were a bunch of industries that were sort of, you know, teetering and this was the last win that sort of blew them over. And so if you look at in the Midwest, for example, uh, American manufacturing as, as one great uh, place to look at, you have a whole generation of workers whose industry hasn't really kept up with the global economy. Um, and also you have an overprescription of opiate drugs in the United States occurring, um, followed by a massive uh, wave of unemployment and uh, you know difficult, uh, access to health insurance, followed by subsidized health insurance and tons of access to opiates. Um, so yeah, it, it's just, it's kind of, it was kind of like a crazy, like perfect storm, but I think I'm really grateful for that kind of experience because growing up and like seeing all those things happening in, in our country made me feel very strongly that like on an institutional level between healthcare, which, you know, was one of the main causes, like our healthcare system is one of the main causes of the opiate epidemic in the United States. Uh, which is sort of mind-boggling to play with, um, and between education and you know how expensive that is, and 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 you know how hard it can be even to find like you know go to any college in the United States. Um, so I had this strong feeling of like our most vital institutions being really broken, and and decentralization and cryptocurrency seemed like the first shot in that um, in an attempt to fix. Yeah. And was your family, like your mom and dad, were they affected by the financial crisis? Did they, they lose their jobs or were you guys okay during that period? Uh, I mean, my family definitely struggled a lot uh, during that period. Like, you know, my, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a hard time for us. Um, so, you know, it took many years to, to recover from a, not really just from a financial perspective, but from an emotional and, you know, life perspective. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely not a fun time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I talked to so many people who've had that same sort of experience where they saw the financial crisis come and they were about your age and maybe just in college or getting out. And they're just people, countless people told me over and over again that it just felt like the, la the next decade was just kind of wiped away, you know? And, um, and it was just a lot of despair and a lot of just like for, for things that not many people had anything to do with, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, for, for us, it was like, I mean, it was so crazy, because I would like go to school, you know, I was in, in 2008, I was in like eighth grade. So I would go to school and see, um, you know, every other day, like some kid doesn't show up to class, because they had to like move in with grandpa and grandpa and grandma across the country, because their parents lost their jobs, or, 
you know, like it, it just felt like a really, um, yeah, it was just a really crazy time. And, and again, at that age, you don't really know what's going on, but I was always a very like questioning and, you know, anti-authoritarian uh, teenager. And yeah. so at that point I, I started to really, well, I think uh, at that I point you're, something. it's not that you don't know what's going on. I think you're starting to pay attention at that point. Like, you're like, what the fuck is going on with all this? Like why, you know, and I think there is that sort of, there tends to be that anger or that sort of like, I, I, I just don't understand why everything is so screwed up. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I was always a, a computer person and, and I, you know, from a very young age, I had learned both open source and the, you know, pirating and torrent community were two options for using kind of computer knowledge to access things that other people just didn't have access to. And so I was already familiar with that culture and that mindset of like the hacker mindset. So the Occupy Wall Street movement and the anonymous organization were really attractive to me as an HD teenager. And that was sort of how I ended up in this rabbit hole of Bitcoin. I was trying to figure out like what's going on with the financial crisis and is there a solution so that in the future in my life, I can be financially stable. Um, and that's sort of how I happened upon Bitcoin and read online a community of people that were proposing it as a solution. So yeah, how did, how did you find the, um, the white paper, the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper? Was it a friend or did you just stumble across it on your own? Or um, how, do you remember that? moment yeah yeah so i mean i had a friend at school who had told me that there was a way to order pot on the internet and i thought that that was hilarious um and so i was looking into it because obviously i was like man this is crazy that there's technology to do this today um, but what i ended up finding was actually and what was really probably the most um the biggest impression that that era of bitcoin had on me was the forums right where online people were actually talking in a really intelligent way about how this financial crisis had occurred and how it was a lack of transparency and a lack of knowledge and a lack of information um, on a really systemic level, like finance, education, health, uh, that our country and the greater world is really plagued with. And now there's technology uh, that's available to anybody with an internet connection that can solve this. So, I mean, that, that really like, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Again, being a, you know, angsty teenager, this all was very exciting to me. Yeah. So, and the great thing about a forum um, like Bitcoin Forum or whatever or, or Reddit, uh, nobody really knows, needs to know how old you are, right? You can kind of punch <laughs> yeah. above your weight a little bit and as long as you can maybe keep up with the conversation and make some good points here and there. Totally. I wish I could say that as like a 15-year-old, I was participating in intellectual debate with other Bitcoiners, but I was a total lurker. I was just there <laughs> reading and, and watching, you know? And, uh, and yeah, in 2013, um, you know, when the news came out that the Silk Road marketplace, because obviously that was where like most of the media attention at that time was on Bitcoin yeah. um, as a result of the Silk Road. When that shut down, I think with my little knowledge, I kind of associated that as, oh, Bitcoin shut down or like, you know, this is, you know, I don't want to do anything to do with Bitcoin if it's, you know, illegal or the FBI sees it or whatever. I just didn't really understand how it worked that well. Um, and then a few years later, I was... Uh, yeah, I mean, I was working as a developer when I heard about Ethereum and Coinbase. So that's how I kind of entered into it professionally. And I realized that the idea of Bitcoin was being applied to solve all different types of problems. Yeah, I was wondering when, because um, Bitcoin is great. It is decentralized, but it's obviously limited in what it can do. Um, and, and you've talked about, you know, like this decentralization is a huge factor. Uh, yeah, so so... I, then, like you said, it was it was kind of when you found Ethereum that you you realized that now um, this the same kind of decentralized approach um, could be applied to a lot of new um, areas. Totally. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and that was really Ethereum for me. Like, I'm, by the way, I'm a huge Bitcoiner. I love Bitcoin. I think in terms of Bitcoin philosophy and it's the standard I hold all of the blockchains to. And, and it is also the reason I love Ethereum is for how in Bitcoin's image it was constructed uh, from the proof of work schema to their focus on decentralization first and performance later. Um, so, yeah, but like I mentioned earlier to me, you know, the financial aspect was one thing. But it's really, you know, take any vital institution. It's our form of commerce, right? We have our educational system. We have our healthcare system. And I'm noticing that in all these categories in life, people are doing what they're told, basically get in debt, pursue higher education, and eat medicine to keep you alive. <laughs> and, and, like, they're, they're not having good results as a society. Like, the majority of people um, in our society who listen to that information, you know, you, you're not ending up in a good place, you know? Um, and so what I, I've always felt like for me, I got into software as a result of software being accessible, the open source community, making uh, education free and widely available and the goodwill of other software developers who are willing to help me, um, you know, learn and, and enter the industry. And so I saw Ethereum as taking this idea of transparency from Bitcoin and fairness. There's a sense of fairness to Bitcoin that I was so attracted to. And let's apply it to all those other systems. Let's apply it to the financial industry, right? Let's apply it hopefully someday to the healthcare and to the education industry, right? Yeah. I think we've done a much better job tackling the first than the rest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the fairness and the transparency is what is, those go hand in hand. Uh, and I think almost any industry that you're naming uh, could, could really benefit from more transparency. Um, tell me about getting your first job as a developer. Um, and, and I think you... You might have found a, a an MIT sweatshirt uh, at, at, <laughs> yeah. at a thrift shop. Can you can you tell 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 our listeners what about that story? Because I love that. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So I was working. Um, I was in community college at the time, and there was a period where I was juggling a bunch of part time jobs and going to school, uh, and I was learning how to code. So I'm like going to school during the day, which felt very important to me at the at the time. Um, and working after school. And then at night I would be like on Udacity or Code Academy, you know, reading about JavaScript or Python or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I was just exhausted all the time and just like running off of caffeine and, and pure willpower at that point. Um, and then there was, a, there was a realization I had where, so, so let me rewind. I had a Craigslist ad for fixing computers and that was like another side hustle of mine. And one day somebody asked me if I could build a website as a result of this Craigslist ad. And I was like, okay, well, I looked up online how much you know, web development uh, costs and I you know, put together a proposal and I was like, sure, I can build a website. And I've been like learning how to write code online for a few months. Um, and after doing that, it just clicked in my head that there was no way I was gonna get where I wanted to as an engineer with like an hour and to dedicate to it. Yeah. And so after that project, I thought, okay, well, what if I just quit you know, all of my part-time jobs, you know, I was a Jimmy John's delivery driver. I worked at my community college and I worked at the Thai restaurant. I was like, what if I quit all those part-time jobs and I just forced myself to find work to do? Um, you know, so yes, I had this old MIT shirt <laughs> and, and I, I, for like a month, I was like wearing the shirt every day just to try to like attract the attention of other programmers and anywhere I would go like coffee shop whatever around Cleveland I would tell people like hey I'm a developer looking for work um you know and sure enough I, I ended up at a dinner one night uh meeting a buddy of mine Aaron Marks who introduced me to a company called Payscape and they were like a payment processor um and I met their CTO 
he was looking, I think he was looking for partners to like implement their payment gateway on their website. So I was going there like, oh, I'm a big shot web developer and I'm going to integrate your payment gateway on all my clients' websites. And I showed up and I was like, I really need a job, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and then that was, uh, that was how it started for me. So, you know, I, I tried doing development in college for a little while, ended up dropping out of school a couple months later. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I got into the tech industry. Yeah. And I know it was probably difficult for you, especially as a kid, like with all the struggles you guys went through with the financial crisis and the opioid stuff, and it was hard on your family, but it's clear that like that gave you like a really good sense of of purpose and sort of drive and I think you know in in a lot of these times in life those sorts of things really kind of make you and kind of like so good kudos to you man I'm I'm, I'm happy to hear that you know that that really kind of uh, helped you just with that drive and that like hustle um, that, that you really need especially in the startup world as you know um, so tell me um, so so then now you're in, in web development. Um, has, have you gotten into Ethereum yet? Or like, where are we in that journey? And, and like, when did you start realizing or thinking in the back of your mind that, you know, you wanted to do maybe your own thing or, or start building stuff in, in like the decentralized world? Totally. Well, well, I always knew I wanted to do my own thing, like probably my whole life. I remember when I was like a kid, I had like a little logo I would draw like when I was like five on like school assignments, right? Like I always, every, I always wanted to kind of do my own thing. And, and with development, what I saw was unlike um, a traditional business, like like a car dealership where you need a property and financing and loans and, and inventory with software, all I needed was, you know, basically sweat equity. I just needed to work hard and learn. And if I could, I could build an app that, you know, I thought could make me billions of dollars or something. Uh, I ended up being a software engineer for many years because it's not that easy to build an app. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I was really attracted. Hold on. I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? I just lost my train of thought. Yeah, no problem. Um, I was wondering when you sort of made the leap into like decentralized, you know, applications and, and from web like development for, for, you know, like a software company. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I was working at, at the payment processor and uh, and I had heard about Coinbase. I used to read Hacker News every day, which I highly recommend if you're trying to learn about the tech industry, like reading the whole first page of Hacker News every day for a couple of years is a pretty good, it's a pretty good indoctrination to like what's happening in the, in the industry. Um, and I kept seeing news about Coinbase and Ethereum and Ethereum just really attracted me for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one, I was a web developer, so Solidity seemed a lot more approachable to me than like building apps on Bitcoin. Uh, and two, again, I, I had this feeling of Bitcoin as a service or this way where you could imbue these decentralized censorship resistant properties from Bitcoin into all types of applications. And that's where my head really started to spin and say, like, finance was simply the entry point for a much greater movement that would involve the decentralization of all these other vital institutions that are used to oppress people today. So, you know, I've always had this very idealistic, you know, vision of what Ethereum can do for the world. And, and I think despite many experiences of opportunism and, and, you know, to the contrary over the last few years, I think we're still in a great position to make a positive impact on the world using that technology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and when did you, when, where did decent labs come from? What was your kind of thought process there? Was it, did, did you see a need that just wasn't being filled? Absolutely. Yeah. So for, uh, 
Well, the need was that I wanted to work in crypto and I wasn't, <laughs> that was the first need. Um, so I, you know, I was running a meetup at the time. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of programming meetups and like, if you're someone who doesn't know anyone in the tech industry and you want to get involved, go to local crypto or development meetups and, you know, talk to open source devs. Those, the people who after work are, you know, drinking beers and talking code are the people who really love programming and are there to help you on your journey. So I highly recommend, uh, like the meetup culture in general. Um, and my now co-founder, Adam, uh, we worked together. He was a senior dad who sort of took me under his wing. We were working on projects together. And uh, he started the Crypto Cleveland meetup, which was eventually the, the largest cryptocurrency meetup uh, in the state of Ohio. And that was really awesome. Um, and so we were, you know, we were like crypto affiliated at this point. Like I'm spending every day thinking about it, but I'm not making a living doing it. Um, and at this point, the uh, agency that Adam and I worked at, which is where I fell in love with building new products, uh, they shut their doors. So, you know, for me, it was easy. I was living in an attic paying like 300 bucks a month rent. Um, but Adam and his wife had just celebrated their second child. So they were like, you know, in a much more serious point in life where things actually matter, like stability and security. Um, so with a little bit of convincing, uh, you know, we made a decision to start working on decent labs full time, uh, which at that point was, had just been an idea. And we knew we wanted to work in crypto. We wanted to run a company. Um, so we flew down to the Texas Bitcoin conference, which was a huge investment for us, like flying across the country. And like, you know, we stayed at my buddy's house on an air mattress in his garage in Austin. But uh, we walked out with our first few customers. And what we learned that day was that there was a bunch of money that had been invested in cryptocurrency projects and there weren't a bunch of devs to build the technology. So it was a clear need. And that's how we started our business of building custom software. What was that first one or two things that you guys did? Uh, that's a great question. So the first project we ever worked on uh, in crypto, like I got paid for was I believe a block explorer for a company called coin ninja in Ohio. Okay. Um, and then that was like a local project that Adam and I boss at our agency, like got for us. And, you know, we were still, we weren't decent yet. And then the very first project I think we ever contributed to as decent was, uh, after that was arcade city, which they were like a peer to peer rideshare app in Austin. They had shut Uber down and the goal was to make like a driver focused, which I, I, I have no idea. How either, I, I don't know what either of those projects are up to nowadays, but they were, yeah, it was a great intro to the space. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then what, like, so what, uh, sorry, what, what year are we at at this point, roughly? So that, this was late 2017 was when, so October 2017 was when we went full-time crypto. Okay. And, uh, you know, a few months later, we had an office and we were starting to hire people, which we were really bad at. Um, for a long time and uh, yeah, it's you know, not as easy as you might think <laughs> no 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 it's really not especially when you don't know how to manage right like it would have been different if we were like experienced managers but Adam and I both had spent our careers as software engineers and all of a sudden we're running a business which is a totally different wheelhouse so it was uh yeah pretty yeah. pretty fascinating that's the boat I'm in right now I've been a reporter my whole life and I'm still kind of a reporter but I'm also running this business now and it's uh, it's it's daunting um, absolutely well so around 20 late 2017 early 2018 that was like the first real big 
kind of run up in prices. Um, uh, and then there was a pretty big crash um, not long after. How, were you guys able to, to weather that? Like, how, how did that sort of affect what you guys were doing? Did, did you have doubts about, you know, like whether this stuff was sustainable? Yeah, I mean, so that was amazing because, uh, yeah, I mean, like the, the high was certainly over at that point, right? Like we went from, you know, we were working as engineers. We just started our first business in our first year, just Adam and I, basically, we, you know, passed with flying colors. You know, we were making money. We opened up the office, you know, things were going good. We were working with bigger and bigger brands. We really felt like the sense of we got this not realizing that we were working in a bubble and selling the most scarce thing in that bubble, which was Solidity developers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, pretty quickly, you know, we had that, that reckoning and there was a period of time where you couldn't make money writing smart contracts. And again, right? Like, look, I, I'm really stoked for all the people in this industry who either entered with money and were able to make long-term investments and not get paid um, and focus on building, you know, cryptocurrency portfolios and investing. But for Adam and I, like that wasn't an option. We came to space, and what we had was our ability to build software. So I wasn't like making a mint off of Bitcoin or Ethereum. I was trying to build a business uh, in that industry. And so that was really brutal because um, both my personal holdings of crypto plummeted and I had you know not much um, and our business all of a sudden dried up. And so we had to kind of think on our feet and decided to differentiate. And instead of just doing software development, we started to do product design. Instead of just doing product design, we started to do branding. And instead of just doing design, branding, development, we started to do go to market. And we really started to differentiate not as a development shop, but as an accelerator for early stage startups. And uh, so selling those services, uh, which are pretty unique and pretty you know inclusive of everything you need to go to market um, to non-crypto startups for that year allowed us to survive and weather that storm because we didn't have the cash reserves we do now where we could, you know, just survive something like that. Yeah. I'm curious what, um, what has Cleveland been like in your experience as you've gone through this? Is it, is it a, is it a good spot to be doing like tech? Is, is it tech heavy or how, how does that like kind of fit into other places like Austin or New York or San Francisco? Yeah, I'm not sure. So I moved to Miami four years ago from, from Cleveland. So I haven't been working in Cleveland for a while. Uh, we do have a few employees there still. Um, who are awesome. And I think like the Midwest, I mean, it might be a cliche. I might just be saying this because I'm from there, but I really do think like the Midwest just builds the best shit. There's like this really modest, hardworking mentality um, from that part of our country that I really admire and that I'm really grateful to have grown up there and sort of, I think, adopted that as a result that there's a, there's a goodness to just working hard. Mm -hmm. um, so I really love that. Um, and I do know that there was like, the Blockland Conference and a few other like local community pushes uh, to build up the blockchain industry there. But honestly, I, 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 I love Miami too. I mean, I've lived here for four years, but I barely even keep up with the local scene here just because I'm always in corners of the internet building, you know, decentralized crap. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and then, so obviously we kind of came out of the crypto winter uh, maybe people kind of peg it at like 2020 in the summer, like DeFi summer, um, where a lot of decentralized finance kind of applications became popular. Um, so you, it sounds like you, if you're able to kind of hang in there um, and and make it through that that tough time, were you guys set up for, you know, like kind of a, a now it's your time to blossom again? 
Yeah, yeah. And I have a really, yeah, I mean, it was really fascinating, right? Because, um, yeah, I mean, coming back from the crypto winter, I remember the first time I learned about accredited investorship. Like when we first started Decent in 2017, I wanted to create like our own crypto app. And I learned that because of uh, FinCEN and MSBs and MTs and, and KYC AML, and because of accredited investorship and the amount of money I would need to raise to, to do that, it was like just totally prohibitively expensive to me um, to start a company like that. And it like further galvanized my belief that these systems should not be policed and controlled by governments. And uh, DeFi to me is like, when I saw Ethereum and I, and I first it clicked and I understood it and I internalized what this could mean for the world, I think DeFi is like what I saw and like what I imagined and what I've been waiting for. Um, I remember Compound in, you know, either late 2017 or, or early 2018. Um, I remember seeing that for the first time and just being mind blown. Like that was really when DeFi started to me was when Compound was released and became popular. And the thing that's so attractive of that to me is the concept of accredited investorship uh, from the perspective of someone who like has not been an accredited investor very long. Uh, is really like a way to just prevent poor people from accessing financial opportunity. And so to me, you know, I mean, if, don't even get me started here, but long story short, like the idea that it's protecting a consumer because their income is low, they must not be smart enough to invest their money right is ridiculous, right? So DeFi to me, what's really fascinating, um, not that it allows you to, to circumvent the concept of a credit investorship specifically, um, but in the concept of financial tools being accessible to everyone, like that is what DeFi is all about. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize we're deploying a smart contract that ETH mainnet and it now lives there and it can be accessed by Goldman Sachs if they want to. It can also be accessed by a 15 year old kid on the other side of the world. So when I think of DeFi, I imagine, you know, me 11 years ago discovering Bitcoin all over again and finding out that, oh, I can get out of my local currency into stable US dollars and then earn a yield on that. And the rate at which that will improve my financial situation, if you're coming from poverty, is just unbelievable. Like it's, it's like light speed. You're now on the most advanced financial rails in the world and that's accessible to anybody in the world. And that's, that's DeFi to me, like reinvigorated my love for crypto. It got me so excited. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that 100%. And I, it, it kind of bugs me to think about all the, the sort of naysayers that are still out there, like saying that, that it's a scam, that there's no use case, you know, for, for any of this stuff. And it, it really kind of like is a slap in the face to people like you're talking about who, who need, you know, help or like access to something so, and that, so that they can grow their wealth. Um, and it, it also um, makes me think that you, the kind of the, the ethos you're talking about is, is something that you've, um, taken on at Decent Labs as well, where, as I understand it, you're kind of trying to help underrepresented groups and, and, and kind of like let people um, come in uh, who, who don't get a lot of access to financial services usually. A hundred percent. And yeah, I think uh, the argument that, you know, DeFi doesn't have a real use case or that, you know, cryptocurrency is only valuable in countries other than the United States where the economies are less strong is a very, very privileged perspective. Like to think that there are no Americans that can benefit from DeFi protocols being publicly accessible or from using cryptocurrency as an alternative financial system. Uh, again, I, I just think it's a lack of, of perspective that causes people to believe that because like when it comes to all the financial assets that are available to the uber wealthy from 
you know, commercial real estate um, to, you know, venture investing, which now makes up a significant chunk of most portfolios. Like that is not available to a regular person. And by the time it has been through a centralized source, um, like I hate to pick on them because I, I, I love this app actually from like a user experience standpoint, but let's look at Fundrise. And, and again, I hate to pick on them. So Web2 technology, it's a commercial real estate investing platform. Um, it's sweet because I get emails that tell me that I'm like a real estate developer and my project was a success and it feels really gratifying. Uh, but by the time I'm receiving earnings off of a real estate investment through an indirect source like that or through Robinhood, right? And people thought trades were free for such a long time. By the time a consumer is receiving that benefit, like they've been cut out of so much alpha. Um, so yeah, I, I just think like, again, it, it, there's there's not a great case for you know, typical people having access to financial products that is a fair playing field relative to the wealthy. Yeah. Um, so then let's jump a little forward and talk about the, the DAO that you guys have created. Um, so that's, that's a decentralized autonomous organization. It's a big, scary word meant to uh, frighten children. Um, but basically what it is, is just, um, it's sort of meant to be a flat organizational structure where um, people are all incentivized to work towards a common goal. Some people are good at marketing. Some are good at develop, you know, writing code. Other people are good at, you know, sales, whatnot. Um, so, so how are you guys using a DAO um, at Decent Labs? And, and why did you think that that was, um, you know, something that you wanted to jump into? Definitely. Yeah. So there's a few, uh, there's a few reasons. And then I can talk a little bit more about like how the structure works from our perspective and what a DAO is from our perspective. Um, so just to speak practically, right? Like the first is it's always felt really unintuitive from a practical standpoint that we work in DeFi and our team has so much amassed knowledge of DeFi protocols and ways to optimize, you know, returns from them. And yet our cash reserves have been sitting in a bank account for all these years. It's felt like just terrible to me. And from an ideological perspective, as someone who believes as fervently as I do, and decentralization to be a CEO of a very hierarchical company has also felt very disingenuous to me. Like I, I, I find myself really struggling with that because I love the responsibility of leadership and I love the work that I do at Decent. Um, but I, it's always felt really strange to me to be supporting this model that I'm, you know, so vehemently outspoken against. So um, that's from the ideological and from a practical perspective. In terms of how we're implementing this. You know, the way that we think of DAOs, if we look at decentralized autonomous organization um, and a term that we've come to use a decent is the minimum viable DAO, it is an entity that exists on chain and can do stuff, right? Like that, that's literally it. So uh, I think right now people are really talking about these like borderline religious political debates on what a DAO should be or, you know, what decentralization should look like. Um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. And, and I, I was wondering to make it more concrete, like what's an example of like, what, okay, you're on chain and it can do stuff. Like what, what is something that, that meets those two criteria? Yeah, so um, I guess the way that we're building it at Decent, there is a entity on chain that can call functions and create activities on chain, like transferring assets or calling the function on a smart contract or inter integrating with the DeFi protocol. And assumingly, you know, you have some sort of governance layer that allows multiple human beings to coordinate that activity, uh, which is what we see with like the proposal format that's typical in DAOs today. Um, 
Now, I think what where where I bring up this these politics are the concept of decentralization's role in that system. Um, so I'm a huge fan of decentralization and structuring organizations that way. And I want to structure my own organization that way um, in the short period of time that I have to play a role and, 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 and influence that um, before it sort of runs and, and grows in whatever direction other people might decide. Um, but there are benefits to tightly woven groups and people naturally form teams and leadership is an insane value to bring to an organization. So I, I think saying inherently that a decentralized structure is a flat structure um, might not be as accurate because the way we see it at decent DAO is it's more like instead of a hierarchy, it is a cluster of different groups or teams, right? So, you know, we will have many leaders at decent DAO. Um, more so than you would expect at a typical organization, uh, working autonomously, but all orbiting around a shared mission or goal. Yeah. So that, that's sort of how I view it. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then, so tell me a little bit about some of the projects you guys have um, uh, worked on. Uh, there's one, there's a kill switch that you guys have, uh, the product. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, so that, that would be sarcophagus and it's a dead man switch or kill switch built on Ethereum and Arweave. Um, so it's really awesome. It's basically a way to encrypt data for any intended recipient, um, store it long term on Arweave and allow a decentralized network of what we call archaeologists or the validators in the system. Um, look for elapsed dead man switches and then deliver them to the recipient for a fee. So it's like it's, it's an economic system. Um, that enables something to occur on chain that you can't really do in isolation without a third party um, like like the validator. So it's really neat. So I would say the most um, apparent use case is, you know, what happens to my Bitcoins when I die and you put your seed phrase in a sarcophagus. Um, and one of the other really exciting ones is like time delayed messages. So, for example, um, it's often the case that a source for a journalist, I'm sure you're familiar has access to critical information when they're in danger and no other time. And so in the sarcophagus system, a journalist source could put critical data in the sarcophagus with a 30 day timer, knowing that they don't have to trust the recipient. They simply have 30 days to get out of Dodge and you know be in a safe place when that information is leaked. So there, there's a bunch of really cool privacy and security games that can be played using sarcophagus. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and then, uh, so how, like I, I've been involved with some DAOs here and there and, and it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, it, you know, you're not really sure like what people are going to want to take on and, and how, you know, it's also new as well. Like, uh, have, how have you guys sort of dealt with those challenges and, and where do you see things going, um, with DAOs? Totally. So the way that we look at it is there's a lot to be learned from the last hundreds of years of human organization and getting stuff done, right? Like corporations are really good at getting things done. They've proven not very good at getting things done, keeping externalities in mind for what's good for our planet or species or well-being of our society. So that's kind of where I think decentralization comes to play. And there's a different mindset of opting in and, and service that exists in a decentralized uh, mindset and kind of paradigm. Um, so, uh, I think on that note, you know, organizations need process, procedure, best practice, standard, you know, the concept of organizational uh, operations, right? What a COO and operations department does in a org today. I think for decent, the way that we're thinking about it is that now 
rather than a process where we are interviewing and recruiting and then bringing people into this system in a private way, uh, we're now going to publish and give away how we approach building software and how we think about the ideas of what we're building or how we commercialize decentralized protocols um, and, and offering that to the world and saying, this is a collaborative platform where we can all participate and do these things together. Uh, there's a great business in it and there's a great impact to be made on the world as a result. Um, and so I, I think if anything, the level of organization and structure required at a traditional organization is actually um, more, it's more of a focal point in at least for our DAO as we're designing it, because we have to share that information with the world. And so it, it's, you know, it can't be a slap together internal document that we're like knowing we have to update, but we will someday kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it kind of gets back to the transparency element, doesn't it? Cause like you're doing this all very transparently, you're putting it out there like on discord or somewhere. And then people come to you sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it kind of flips the switch of, um, of how corporations tend to hire people, you know, like, um, so it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but my and, goal is to get to the point where you could hear about a decent project like Fractal or DAO governance framework and within 24 hours have, you know, submitted a small pull request to it as a way to meet our team, get paid for that work that you've done. And as a result, kind of have your foot in the door at the organization and, and simply let it be a system that one can opt into. Mm -hmm. How far away are we from that, do you think? I don't know. I mean, okay, to the point where that would be like automated, we're, we're quite a ways away. I mean, that's like the dream, right? Is like this total meritocracy where a pull request gets like an automated transaction on chain and is rewarded for, but there's a lot of human validation that has to happen in that system. So I think I'll probably be spending the next three to six months personally, like designing the human processes required for an organization like that to operate. Um, I, I really do think we're taking some of the idealism and, uh, and I mean that in a positive way and some of the, the focus on, you know, optimizing for the public from projects like Gitcoin that have existed. And we're applying this, you know, business model of a venture studio to it with the hopes that that will be a sustainable way to build goods that are accessible to the whole world. And are you, um, are you building the decent labs DAO with like a coin involved or, or a, a payment mechanism in, in integrated into it? Yeah. So I think as a part of DAOs, contributor payments are really important. Um, I think what we'll end up seeing, I hope emerge as a standard again for all of the people in the world who have bills to pay and still can contribute to crypto where DAO contributors are paid, you know, in a stable coin and the native project asset, or, you know, in a highly liquid cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum, which you can you know, reasonably pay your bills with. Um, and that, that'll open the door. I think standardizing that decentralized contributors should be paid on a regular basis, like an employee or contractor would is a really important thing. Um, to open up the doors to more contributors in the space. Um, you know, so, so that, that has been really exciting. And I, I can also shout out great, great product slash service is Opolis, uh, which is a service provider that helps DAO contributors uh, sort out like entity formation, medical insurance, things that you'd want as an employee that you don't receive as a contractor uh, within the United States. So that's a really good option for people who they want to work in the decentralized world, but you know, the idea of not having health insurance is, is really frightening. Yeah. Are you, what are you hearing on the regulatory front in that regard when, you know, you've got a, an inherent token and you're using it to pay people is, 
Do you, do you feel like you're going to get close to securities laws there? Or what, I mean, it's, it's a shame that the SEC hasn't really spelled this out more clearly, but what do you, where do you come down on that sort of side of it? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, as a U.S. citizen, assuming I have to adhere to all U.S. laws, I'm, you know, playing pretty fair and safe on that front. Like, I, I would say just because I don't agree with certain financial legislation doesn't mean I feel I'm exempt from it and, and don't want to do business that way ever. I just think it's a short-sighted approach. So I think our goal is to be as, as safe as possible, specifically on the topic of securities, by not issuing or selling tokens of the projects that we're building to investors or, or treating them as you know a financial asset. Like I, I, I would say like any project to be built by Decent DAO uh, would need to be like a decentralized protocol project that you know a tokenized element is a requirement for it to function uh, versus some sort of like financialization of the system. Yeah. So you know and, and decent DAO itself, you know, membership really is only valuable from the perspective of actually governing what projects are being created. Um, so that's that's like a totally different system. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, Parker, thank you so much for, for being here and, and kind of educating us on all, the, all this great stuff. Um, really uh, fascinating backstory and, and all the best of luck with Decent Labs and Decent DAO. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. And it was great to meet. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to learn more about Decent, um, our website's decentlabs.io. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm OG Moondog. I just, just started using Twitter. so <laughs> Yeah, I like your handle. Yeah, I'll, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well. Um, so, uh, And then, yeah, good luck with the fundraising. I hope everything goes well. And uh, good luck with everything else. Parker, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.